we are in our 11th week of the Book of Beginnings, the first book in the Bible. It's been, uh, it's been six weeks since I've had the opportunity to be up here. And as I was preparing for this message, there was, uh, I was telling somebody this morning, I was, I'm just a, just a little bit, um, I don't know if ashamed's the right word, but um, cognizant of my shortcomings. And that as one of your pastors who teaches about a third of the time, there is about two-thirds of the time where I take a break from spending intimate time in Genesis. So it, it, it took me a, a better part of this week to get ramped back up, even though I've sat through both Dean and Chris's preaching and, and have grown from it, just to, just to get my own heart right with the Lord so that I'm not getting in the way of what God has to offer this morning. This is a huge privilege and responsibility, and I've been reminded that I have nothing to offer but God's Word itself and my availability. I've also been reminded that every bit of God's Word is relevant for today in Windsor, Colorado, 2009. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is God-breathed, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. God's Word is also written for a very specific audience and for a very specific time. And the book of Genesis was written by Moses some 300 years after the history of Genesis was finished. And it was written to the Israelites. Chapter 3 is one of the most critical chapters to understand in all of God's Word. If you miss chapter 3, you miss the rest of the Bible. Because chapter 3 is where we see the fallen world, where we see the first sin of the first couple. It's where we also see, and we're going to get into it next week more, as we see the consequences of sin and God's mercy in the midst of those consequences. There are several questions that Moses is going to answer as we look at the rest of chapter 3. And that is, is what happened to God's good creation? Right after creating man and woman, God called it very good. And the Israelites are wondering right now, as some of us are wondering now, what happened to God's very good creation? The next thing that he's going to answer is, why is it that we experience pain, sickness, toil, tensions in marriage, and death? Why is it that we experience all those things? You know, the Israelites had a tough go at it. They were held in slavery and bondage. They were beaten. Their baby boys were drowned in the Nile. They wandered in the hot desert, thirsty, wondering when they're ever going to get there. So they're wondering, why is it that we have all this pain? Next question, is the Lord's judgment of sin tempered by His grace and mercy? Is God's judgment of sin tempered by His grace and mercy? You know, there was a pattern developing with the Israelites. When they were set free from the bondage of Egypt, they pretty much spent 40 years complaining. They complained about the food. They complained about the heat. They complained about Moses taking too long with the Lord. And the Lord gave them consequences. The consequences for their rebellion and their sin, for everybody but three of them, was they didn't get to see Canaan. And the last question is, is there hope for suffering people? that the evil will eventually be overcome through the seed of the woman and that God will restore paradise on earth. Is there hope? 
And we're going to see that hope next week in Genesis 3.15. And I would encourage you, if you, wherever you're at in the Word this week, I want you to put it down and take a hard look at Genesis 3, verses 14 through 24. And ask the Lord to give you understanding of it. Like maybe he's never given you an understanding of it before. Two weeks ago, Pastor Dean walked us through the first seven verses of Genesis where the first man and the, and the first woman rebelled against the Holy God. They directly obeyed his only commandment. One thing, they obeyed it. It was Satan taking the form of a serpent that tempted both Adam and Eve. God gave Adam pretty much free reign to do anything he wanted and to eat anything he wanted except from one tree. God said to Adam, he says, you may eat of every tree of the garden. That's the first thing he said. You may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Everything is fair game. For in the day that you eat of that one tree, you shall surely die. Now the crafty one did what he did best. He lied and he deceived. The same thing he's doing today. He's a liar and deceiver. He distorts God's perfect word. He said this in 3.1. He said to Eve, Did God actually say, get this, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see how the enemy distorted that? God said you can eat from any tree in the garden except one. And the enemy said to Eve, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The enemy's temptation quickly took foot and Eve started desiring the tree that would give her wisdom. She not only ate the forbidden tree, but she gave it to her husband. As Dean talked about two weeks ago in verse 7, shame, guilty conscience, and evil arrived on the scene for the first time. And it hasn't left since. It says, The eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The serpent told Eve that her eyes would be opened. And boy, were they opened. She expected them to be opened so that she'd be just like God. I don't know if she thought she could see through buildings, but what she got is an understanding of both good and now evil. Today we're going to look and we're going to see God gently pursuing fallen humanity. You know what? I don't know how many times I've read Genesis, but I don't know if I've ever seen it this way. And pay attention because it's not a Lord sitting in his throne with his nose up, gavel in hand, saying, what did you do? He gently pursued these unrepentant sinners. And he gave them every opportunity to fess up, to acknowledge their sin, to confess. Next week, we're going to see the consequences of their disobedience, while at the same time, God's loving and merciful hand. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are merciful, and that you are gracious, and that you are long-suffering. God, we thank you that you came to seek and save the lost. God, we thank you that you are a holy God and that you are a righteous God. 
You're also full of grace and full of mercy. Lord, I just pray that you would just uh, open our eyes and our heart this morning to receive your word. God, I pray that you would move me out of the way. God, if there's any offensive way in me, God, please move that away. And Lord, I just pray that, that you would teach us and that when we would leave here today, we'd have a greater understanding of our sin and your amazing mercies and your grace. Amen. Let's read the, uh, the scripture together, Genesis chapter 3. Let's read uh, verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. The first thing that I want to bring to our attention is Lord God. There was a transition in, in chapter 2, verse 4, from, from God to Lord God. And this is Yahweh Elohim. And this is important because remember who Moses is writing to. He's writing to the Israelites. And the Israelites know Yah, Yahweh Elohim as a personal God who led them out of Egypt, fed them in the desert, and made a covenant with them and called them to obey his commandments. The next thing I want to bring to your attention is the sound of the Lord. It says that Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking. And this may be the Lord literally walking. I'm not quite sure. But one thing I'm sure of is that Adam and Eve recognized it. This is a sound that they had heard before. When we know the Lord, we know his voice, don't we? I call my sheep, and they know my name. The next thing I want to bring to our attention is that they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They were hiding because of guilt and shame. 
They didn't understand that this was really futile. It was pointless because God is omniscient, he's omnipresent, and he's omnipotent. Hebrews 4.13 says that no, te- no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Open your Bibles up to Psalm 139 for a minute, if you would. Verses 1 through 12. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark, dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. What Adam and Eve did not recognize, apparently, is that there was no hiding. There was no hiding from the Lord. But something was different. They had walked around naked with no worries, no guilt, no condemnation. And now something was different. And folks, there is one cure for guilt and shame. The Israelites that Moses was writing to knew it. And as believers, we know it. There's one cure for guilt and shame, and that's the blood of Christ. Who through the eternal spirit offered... It says in Hebrews 9.14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself up without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So the first principle is that there's a cure for guilt and shame, and that's the blood of Christ. If you're here today without a relationship with Jesus, You've got things in your life that you're having a hard time facing. You've got sins in your life that you feel guilty about. You feel shameful about. And there's only one person that can take those away from you. And that's by putting your faith and trust in Jesus. And he will forgive you of all the past shame and guilt. Verse 9 and 10. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Very interesting that he called to the man. He called to the man. It's also interesting that the enemy quizzed the woman. The serpent quizzed the woman, and the Lord asked the questions of the man. And there's no mistake here. Men, there is a responsibility 
whether you like it or not, that we're the head of the household and we have a responsibility to protect and to shepherd and stand in front of. And the Lord questioned the man because the man sinned. He was deceived and she sinned. But the, it, was the, it was all throughout Scripture, God points to Adam. It says in Ephesians 5.23, For the husband is the head of the wife. And we're not to lord it over the ladies. It's by God's design and their protection. The next thing that we want to observe in these verses is that God called to the man and said, Where are you? And I'm quite certain that God was not ripping through the garden going, Where are you? Where are you at? It's more the picture of a loving father. Where are you? I created you for a relationship with me. Where are you, son? I couldn't get the picture of the prodigal son out of my mind. Where Luke 15, the loving father gives his two sons everything, his entire, his entire inheritance. And the one son jets, takes it, rebels after the loving father had given him every good and perfect gift. And before that son had repented, before he had asked his father for forgiveness, his father saw him in the distance. And you remember what his dad did? He ran to him. And this is a picture of what God the Father is doing in the, in the garden. And he's not looking for Adam to destroy him. He's looking for Adam to restore him. He's looking for Adam to repent and to restore the love relationship that God had just, had just created days before. There's two times in my life, there's actually daily times in my life, but two biggies in my life, where God so clearly called out to me, Dan, where are you? One is when I was a high schooler. I don't know if I'm getting teared up. I'm too old. To, I shouldn't be able to remember this. But I was a 15-year-old on the, on the wrong path. Interested in girls. That's not the wrong path, guys. But the way I was interested in girls, the pot that I was smoking, the drinking that I was doing, I was so clearly on the wrong path. And I didn't hear God audibly say, Dan, where are you? But he so clearly and obviously and lovingly drew me to himself. It says in the scriptures that no one seeks after God. No one. God comes after us. The second time was about, it was almost 20 years ago. Nancy and I were about 10 years into marriage. And uh, I was chasing the American dream. And I was doing everything that a man should not be doing. And I believed that when I was 15 that I really put my faith and trust in Jesus, that I was really His. And in my late 20s, I went off the deep end. 
And I had about everything that you could ask for from a worldly standpoint. And here comes God again. Say, Dan, where are you? Where are you? Where are you, my son? I created you for a relationship with me. And you're running. And you know how I heard the voice this time? Was through loving brothers and sisters. I was in the investment business at the time and a, and a, a dear customer of mine, Stan Harwood, 89 years old right now, lost his wife two years ago, and he's still on staff at a church, no pay. This guy invited Nancy and I to Faith Bible Church, Foothills Bible Church. I had another friend, Dave Jones, invited me to a conference called Dad the Family Shepherd. I had another friend that invited me to Promise Keepers. I had another friend that invited us to a Bible study on Friday nights. These were, I mean, just coming from different directions. You know what God was doing? He was saying, Dan, where are you? I want you back. Where are you at? Are you just playing the game? You got the lingo down, you hear Sunday mornings? God created you for a relationship with himself. Not just to stuff our heads with, with fun Bible facts, but to love him, to know the Lord our God, and to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. God pursues us in our sin, not our perfection. Thank God. Can I hear an amen on that? Because if he were to pursue me in my perfection, I would still be outside of a relationship with him. In Romans 3, 10 through 12, it says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. If you're here today without a relationship with Jesus, cry out to him. He's going to do the work. He's going to draw you in. If you don't know how to get there, just ask. Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Romans 5, 6, and 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The principle here is God wants a relationship with us. And believer, that goes for you too. Yes, this is certainly a message for the unbeliever. But God wants an intimate, surrendered relationship with each of us 24-7. Verse 12 and 13. Excuse me. Verse 11. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? A little bit of a rhetorical question. But really I think it's more of God's conviction. Giving them an opportunity to fess up. To confess. God continues his loving pursuit here. 
what God might say to me today in this same situation is, Dan, did you just get angry with Nancy? What did I tell you in my word about anger and righteousness? Did you just lie to your employer? What does my word say about lying? There's some kind, uh, it's, it's a little bit condes- condescending, but the Lord is, is trying to bring Adam and Eve back into the fold. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. In Exodus 34.6, Moses was crying out to the Lord and the Lord declared this statement about himself. He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. It doesn't mean that the Lord isn't going to eventually take us out to the divine woodshed. That's never his first choice. His first choice, even by taking us to the woodshed, it's grace and it's mercy and his heart is to restore. Principle number three, God is merciful, gracious, and slow to anger. And some of us need more of that on a daily basis than others. Verse 12 and 13, the man said, The woman you gave me, you gave her to be with me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The woman who you gave to be with me? It's her fault. In fact, I think that's, I'm interpreting this right. It just gave me complete freedom for the way that I act is completely my wife's fault. Woo! Wrong. God does not or cannot tempt or cause sin in any way. Everything that comes down from the Father of lights is a perfect gift. My bride is a perfect gift. Any sin in my home, any sin in my heart, is not somebody else's fault. It doesn't matter how evil, how corrupt, how wayward the other person is, they cannot ever be the excuse for my sin or your sin. James 1, 13-15 says... Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, it is, when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. Without the admission of guilt and a desire to repent, there can be no relationship with God. 
That's for the unbeliever. Because until the unbeliever recognizes their sin against the holy God and turns from that sin in repentance, there can be no relationship. And believer, this is true with us today. Positionally, we are eternally secure in God's arms. Positionally, there's nothing we can do to separate us from the love of God. Relationally, if you have got a stiff neck, as it says in God's Word, you've got unrepentant, hard heart, it can break off the relationship with the Lord. And it's easy to restore that. Just humble yourself. Say, God, I've sinned against you and only you. Adam says, she gave me the fruit, I ate it. The serpent, and Eve said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. They both admit the mistake. Have you caught that? They both said, yeah, I ate it. But they place blame elsewhere. Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain, <clears throat> excuse me, obtain mercy. The Israelites are probably sitting here in the desert reading this and wondering how in the world Adam and Eve could be so naive to think that they could lie to God and blame their sin on someone else. But they're just reading this, probably getting a chuckle by the fire. God, what was Adam and Eve thinking? Hmm. About the same time they were reading this account, of the first sin. There were certain things going on. And they were saying things like, you know, God, we would not have complained if we had something else besides bread to eat. It's your fault. You gave us this bread. You caused our complaining. We would not have rebelled if Moses and Aaron had not have dropped the idea of taking us into Canaan where there's people there that could kill us. It's Moses and Aaron's fault that we're rebelling. If they would have tried to drag us into the promised land where we could die, we would never have complained. You know, we wouldn't have forsaken the one true God and worshipped the golden calf. if Moses wouldn't have taken so cotton-picking long interceding for us with the Lord. See, the Israelites were in the midst of rebellion. They were making false gods. They were complaining about the food, which was all sin. But who were they blaming the sin on? It was Moses' fault. It was Aaron's fault. It was God's fault. You're probably thinking, sitting here today, how ridiculous that Adam and Eve thought they could lie to God and blame each other for their own sin. Yeah, and the Israelites, they were totally deceived. Not so fast, grasshopper. Have you ever said, I wouldn't get so mad if she just didn't do this? What does God call anger? Unless it's righteous anger. 
He calls it sin. Guys, is it her fault? I wouldn't cheat my employer if they'd only appreciate me more. I wouldn't look at pornography if there wasn't so much garbage on TV. You see, you see, it's society's fault. It's TV's fault. It's lack of intimacy with your wife's fault that you're looking at pornography. I wouldn't flirt with other men if only my husband paid more attention to me. You know, I wouldn't lie to my parents if they were more lenient. True repentance is owning your sin and running to the cross where we can find mercy in the time of need. I want to read uh, Psalm 51. It is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. And you've heard me refer to it before. And it's where David, after committing adultery, after murdering, after lying, and probably living for about eight months in this lie, was finally confronted by a brother, Nathan, that loved him. And this is, the Lord completely broke David's heart, convicted of, of, of his sin. And this is how David responded. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The last principle is, is that we're responsible for our sin. Nobody else is. And that if you know Jesus, victory's won. All past, present, future transgressions covered by the blood of Christ. But we're still in this flesh suit and we have a tendency to sin. We have a tendency to, to, uh, to rebel. And when those tendencies come up, just run to God. He's there beckoning you back into the relationship. Next week, we're going to take a look at the consequences for Adam and Eve's disobedience. And these are consequences that is peppered with the greatest news that mankind has ever heard. Let's pray. Father, we just praise you. We thank you for your word. God, we thank you that, uh, that you relentlessly and lovingly pursue us. We thank you that you came to seek and save the lost. 
Lord, we thank you that you came to, uh, to not condemn, but to uh, declare us righteous, to impute your righteousness in us. God, I love you so much. 